Man, how awesome it is to be a part of the body of Christ, right? The gospel has no boundaries, and uh, we get to be ambassadors. Well, I'm already full, um, and hopefully you won't cry uh, during this message as much as during the prayer time. Um, Whether you're in the room or online or listen to this podcast later, um, open up your Bibles to Genesis 9, So we're going to be tonight. Um, at the beginning of this year, you know, it's still, it's still January. Does that feel weird? I feel like it's, it's only the middle of January. It's been a pretty long month. Um, but at the beginning of this year, Allie and, um, was texting with some friends, a few ladies in the church, and uh, one of them sent a picture. It's going to be on the slide for you to see. Isn't that beautiful? I don't know if you can see it. Um, for those onli- online or podcast it's a picture of a rainbow over a house and there's actually a double rainbow I don't know if you see it there's a double rainbow which that's the second double rainbow I've seen since moving here which is gorgeous over the valley Um, double rainbow is pretty awesome in the text um, the lady who sent said this she said my neighbor sent me this picture of our house this morning right after I read through the flood account in Genesis what a beautiful reminder at the start of this new year that the Lord is faithful and trustworthy and will keep his promises. The Lord is faithful and trustworthy and will keep his promises. And that's one of the main takeaways we're going to um, have tonight. Um, and, and I think we've seen that to be true as we've journeyed through Genesis thus far in all of the chapters that we've covered. And so we haven't done this yet. I want to do it really quick. I just want to do a brief recap of each chapter like super fast, right? So chapter one, God creates everything out of nothing and everything's perfect. Boom. Chapter two, we get a closer look, more detailed account of, of creation, right? And a detailed account of how God created male and female. He ordained marriage as a holy union to create more image bearers. Then we get to chapter three, where we get to the fall, where Adam and Eve choose to rebel against God, disobey his word, give in to their flesh and temptation, and they usher in sin and death into the picture. And because of their sin, God removes them from the garden. And then chapter four, Cain kills his brother in cold blood. And later, Lamech brags about his murderous deeds. And then, y'all remember chapter five, that repeated phrase, and he died right? Over and over and over again. And it's just a reminder of the consequences of sin. God's word proves to be true, comes to pass. Death reigns over humanity. And then that very weird story in Genesis 6, right? It gives us a glimpse into the rapid moral decline of um, humanity and the advancement of evil in the world. And then corruption ruled in the hearts of men and sin consumed the world. And so we've seen in Genesis 7 and 8 where God sends a flood to destroy the earth along with its inhabitants, and wash it clean of wickedness. So God's wrath is poured out, and only by God's mercy and grace was Noah and his family preserved to carry on the promise of a redeemer to crush the head of the serpent from the promise of Genesis 3.15. So at the beginning of our chapter tonight, we're going to see how God blesses Noah and gives him specific instructions. Um, And this is right on the tails of last week where Noah built an altar, right, and worshiped the Lord by offering him sacrifices. So before we dive into reading the word, let's ask the Lord to speak to us. Father, I, I praise you and thank you for this evening. I thank you for this room that we're in right now. 
God, I thank you and praise you for the, the opportunity to gather together. We don't want to take for granted this place. We don't want to take for granted the, the lights that are on, the, the seats that we're sitting in, uh, the, the opportunity you've given us to open up your word. And we would literally just be wasting our time if we were here without our Bibles open. And so I ask for you to speak because we want to know you more. As we have sung, we want to know you more. Lord, we want your will to be done and not our own. We want to, to love you more. We want to obey you more. So I pray that, Holy Spirit, that you would work through your inspired text tonight. Speak because we need to hear from you. Change hearts and lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Genesis 9, starting in verse 1. This is God's word. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is basically like a recreation account. God starts over with Noah and his family. So if you are like, man, be faithful, be fruitful, multiply, uh, sounds familiar. It's because it does. It's Genesis 1, right? It's the echo of Genesis 1, 28. The, the marriage blessing that God gave to Adam and Eve is reiterated here for Noah and his sons. So husband and wife are to come together, bear children, and increase God's image in the world. We don't really have a problem with increasing image bearers around here, do we? I, f I feel like there's constantly little babies, and even Braden and Courtney, you know, they did a great job of announcing that they were having a kid. Um, <laughs> in case you didn't know, they are. Uh, so, so he gave me permission to say that. <laughs> uh, marriage is, is the only God-honoring way to fulfill this command right, to be fruitful and multiply. The miracle and mystery of marriage is that it is a living, breathing flesh, in the flesh, illustration of the union between Christ and his church. And so in his book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, can't recommend this book any more highly, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Christopher Young says this about marriage. Marriage may be an expression of fidelity, but it's not the highest ideal of fidelity. God is. No one is more faithful than God. Marriage may be an expression of devotion, but no one is more devoted than God himself. Marriage may, may be an expression of sacrifice, but no sacrifice is greater than the one who gave his life for us. Marriage may be where family begins, but the one true and lasting family is the family of God, the body of Christ. Marriage has never had a monopoly on love. The greatest expression of love is when God the Father sent his only begotten son to die for us. The pinnacle of love is God's love for us in Christ. Nothing is greater than that. Should marriage bring us joy and contentment? Certainly. But our ultimate joy and contentment must be in God alone, whether you're married or whether you're single. David explains, exclaims this to God, your steadfast love is better than life. Our ultimate goal in life is not marriage, but Jesus Christ. And loving him more than life itself is the best way to prepare for marriage or any other relationship. Christ did not die so we could be married Christ died so that we would have him. That's a really long quote, but it's really good. And marriage is not the goal, right? Union with Christ is the ultimate goal. Right? Marriage is a beautiful gift, an illustration, right? But it's, it's the union with Jesus that far surpasses that and will outlast marriage. In verses 2 and 3 in Genesis 9, we, we find new instructions for Noah from God. God says this, 
The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every morning, every morning, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So God gives man the ability to put dread into animals. This is for our protection, right? A few times... um, I've been in the backyard playing with my boys, and um, a random dogs will show up, and they get scared. Um, and one time, we were back there, and this dog showed up, and I grabbed it by the collar because I thought I knew it, and I did. And I, I pulled it into my car, and it sat down like a good little person, and, and I drove it to its owner's house. And I pull up in the Clark's driveway, <laughs> and, uh, and Cinder had once again broken through the invisible fence. And, and as soon as, like, she's so happy. And as soon as she sees Sean, her ears drop. And I, I pull up, and I'm not kidding, like, and, and, and he'll, he looks at her, and, and the door opens, and she jumps out. Her tail tucks between her legs, and she runs straight to the front porch. And he goes, she knows she's in trouble, <laughs> right? Like, like, literally, like, the, the dread of Sean was dripping all over that dog. Right, and, and that's God-given. That, that literally is God-given, right? You also notice in verse 3 that God gives man dominion and blessing to eat animals. It says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Now, I don't think that I would eat every moving thing that lives, but, but most of it, yes, right? And this is different from Genesis 1.29, where God gave only plants for food. Here, he gives animals for food, and all the meat-eating lovers said, amen, right? God gives permission for us to eat meat. It also says salad, enjoy, and still enjoy your salad, right? Um, but truly, I don't think that there's really anything that compares to like a tender, juicy filet mignon, right? Or fillet mignon, whatever you say. Or, or um, I mean, just a, a marbled ribeye, right? I mean... <laughs> But around here, I have noticed and been introduced to a lot of smoked meats, right? I mean, there's a lot of great smokers in this church. I mean, I'm not, however you take that, smoked meats. Um, I mean, chicken that falls off the bone, yeah? But a lot of pork butts, rump roasts, ribs. Is your mouth watering yet? Are you ready for dinner? <laughs> So before the flood, God doesn't explicitly say people should be vegetarians, meaning there are no explicit prohibitions to eating meat pre-flood, but there's also no allowance until after the flood. God would later restrict this with the Israelites, but the New Testament makes clear this was only for a certain people at a certain time. In verses 4 through 5, God gives very detailed instructions about eating meat and killing. Verse 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. So there are stipulations on eating meat. Like the emphasis is on the blood. The meat has to be cooked. Eating blood has kind of always been taboo. Not only that, but God is very practical. And he knows that eating uncooked meat leads to sickness and disease. Right? So just like with the animals, putting dread in them and now giving instructions, it's very practical. Like he's, he's doing this for our protection so that we wouldn't get sick. So God's instructions here would lead to life. 
The unique emphasis on the blood is also due to the fact that life is in the blood and God is the giver of life. And the shedding of human blood is a very serious thing. God tells us about his high standard for the value of human life by instituting the death penalty for murder. A reckoning is judgment or punishment for misdeeds. So God requires punishment if someone takes the life of another man. Verse 6 tells us what type of punishment. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So the punishment for murder is the death penalty. Why the ultimate punishment? Because of the value of what was taken away. God made man in his own image. So once again, he's talking about the Imago Dei. Because of this, God makes murder a capital offense. He's guarding society against murder by instituting this law. Now, last week we read in Genesis 8:21 that God knew the intentions of man's heart was evil from his youth. So even still, God reiterates that humans are made in his image, although corrupt, all human life has immeasurable value and is precious to God. So in this new chapter, God establishes new laws for life for his explicit glory and the value of humanity. We get to verse 7, and he repeats it again. He says, you be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. So here again, we hear Genesis 1, and 28. God's purpose for us is that people who are made in his image would fill the earth with his glory by their faith and their obedience. Murder is, the, is ultimately an attack against God because we were made in God's image. In these first seven verses, Ross, in his commentary, summarizes it this way. He says, demonstrating his high regard for life, God established a new order with the blessing of fruitfulness and the prohibition of taking a person's life. So from verses 8 through 17, which we're about to dive into, God gives us a promise and a sign of this covenant promise. Look at verse 8 with me. God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So Wayne Grudem's definition of covenant is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. So last weekend... Um, on the 8th, Donovan and Elizabeth got married, right? They entered into a covenant Christian marriage together. And now this is way different from a contract. Contracts are transactional, and, and they say, you hold up your end of the bargain, I'll hold up my end of the bargain. A covenant is relational and personal, and it says, I will love you no matter what. I give myself to you in lifelong faithfulness and devotion. So throughout the Bible, we see different covenants. One unique thing about the Noahic covenant is that man does not negotiate terms with God. God just establishes it, period. God makes promises, and his promises don't depend on or call for human commitments being met. The covenant God made with Noah is basically that he would promise to not flood the earth ever again in totality. The rainbow is the sign of God's covenant, which you see in verses 12 through 16. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. 
When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. So that word bow that's used in this passage is the same term for war or a hunting bow. This is God's bow, right? God created the rainbow. It's a sign of his promise. Rainbows remind us that divine wrath gave way to peace and that judgment is God's to withhold and to dish out. But we live in a culture of self-appointed, self-sovereign individuals who love to do anything to declare autonomy. We are more than self-centered. We are self-obsessed. And marriage has lost its sacred meaning. Sexuality has been perverted and idolized. Morality is subjective and gender is said to be fluid. The LGBTQ plus culture has tried to hijack the rainbow. Ironically, it's a sign of patience and promise to withhold his wrath over sin, not a celebration of it. Yet, in our culture, in our current cultural climate, around the globe, a rainbow flag is flown whenever someone is proud about anything other than biblical sexuality. You might not know this, but last Saturday on January 8th, the Canadian government passed a bill called C4 into law. Now, I read an article this week that said this bill will amend the criminal code in Canada to ban conversion therapy. It will criminalize, among other things, causing another person to undergo conversion therapy, promoting or advertising conversion therapy. Now, you've probably never heard of conversion therapy, and if you don't know what that is, I'm going to define it for you in a second. But in the preamble of this bill, it says that the, this is what the bill says. The belief that heterosexuality, cisgender, gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions is a myth. Now, if you don't understand what that means, in one sentence, this is what that means. According to Canadian law, as of January 8th, 2022, the belief in God's design for marriage and sexuality is now considered to be a myth. That the Bible is fake. It's not true. As Brody stated last week, we believe that the Bible is sufficient. The Bible's sufficient for all of life, pertaining to life and godliness, the life now and life eternal. And the best thing for humanity is to get wisdom from the Bible, to get counsel from the Bible. So what this means practically is that the Canadian government's decision to pass this bill comes against parents and counselors who would seek to offer biblical counsel with respect to sexuality and sexual immorality and gender. Now you might not know, like I said, what conversion therapy is. Simply put, conversion therapy is any practice, treatment, or service that would speak against homosexuality or transgenderism. So it would now be against the law to counsel someone to obey God and follow Jesus by abandoning their homosexual transgender actions or lifestyle. And, I, and I'm not up here preaching just against a specific group of people, right? And or against conversion therapy. Here's, here's the reality. In every field, there are bad people, right? There's bad counseling. There are people who, who use the word of God in the wrong way. They might share truth, but they don't share it in, in love and with grace, right? So the reality is 
Whether you're in Canada or whether you're in the U.S., biblical sexuality is under assault. If you believe what the Bible says about man and woman and about sex and gender, then you are in the minority, right? What is biblical sexuality? That's a great question because for centuries, some people have believed that heterosexuality is the goal. So people have tried to to get people who weren't heterosexual to to try to, to change into something, right? But that's not what the Bible says. That's not the goal. Whether one has hetero, homo, bi, trans, whatever feelings, the reality is we are all sexual sinners, every single one of us. The goal isn't heterosexuality. The goal is holy sexuality. Christian Young says this, God declares that only sex between a husband and wife in marriage is good. Every sexual expression outside of this context, whether in an opposite-sex relationship or a same-sex relationship, God condemns as sinful. So by God's good design, we are not intended to find our identity in our sexual feelings, despite what our culture says, despite what people tell you. Biblical sexuality is God's vision for sexuality. God's sexual ethic is holy sexuality. Holy sexuality, as John defines it, consists of two paths, chastity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage. Chastity is more than simply abstention from extramarital sex. It conveys purity and holiness. Faithfulness is more than merely maintaining chastity and avoiding illicit sex. It conveys covenantal commitment, right? So we get our sexual ethic from God's word, not from what man says, okay? Back to the rainbow. There's going to be a few little rabbit trails. There's a lot in this passage. Back to the rainbow. The rainbow is God's. It doesn't belong to man. Each rainbow is a reminder of God's promise to all living things. It's universal, unilateral, and unconditional. The rainbow is associated with God's glory to speak of his brightness and light around his throne. The rainbow is not only found at the beginning of the Bible. Usually when people think of rainbows, they think of Noah's Ark and the story, right? But did you know that the rainbow is found at the end of the Bible? In Revelation 4, it says, And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Because we are so self-focused, we think the rainbow is about us and for us. The rainbow is God's rainbow. And the Genesis text puts emphasis on God being reminded Look at it. It says, I will see it, and I will remember the everlasting covenant. Right? This is God's reminder to withhold his wrath. As Revelation 4.3 tells us, God sits on his throne surrounded by this reminder. Not us. We're not sitting on the throne. And in Genesis 9.17, God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This sign requires no active or voluntary participation on humanity's part. There's no assent, no acknowledgement, no ratification, just simply unconditional mercy, a sign of promise. So God's covenant with Noah was different than with Abraham and Moses because God's covenant with Noah was not about eternal life or fellowship with God. God's reputation has been to establish, has been established on his ability to fulfill all of his promises, right? We know that he is trustworthy. We know that he is true. We know that he fulfills all of his promises. And we would be wise to recall from last week when Brody emphasized Genesis 8-1, but God remembered Noah. God says, I will remember 
in verses 15 and 16. He says it twice. And Ross says the verb remember is used frequently to describe God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. The main point is that God's covenant turns judgment into grace. Judgment into grace. Commentators break up chapter 9 into two main halves. The first 17 verses, and then you have 18 through 29. In the first half, you have recreation, mandate, and the Noahic covenant. In the second half, we're about to dive into, we see Noah's descendants, we see curses, blessings, and we see that sin still leads to death. So let's start in the second half in verse 18. It says, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. We, me and you, are descendants of Noah. All people groups came from Noah's descendants. The the narrator tells us that Shem, Ham, and Japheth were the three sons of Noah who would carry on the line of humanity and from which the promised Redeemer would come. Almost as foreshadowing, we're told that Ham the youngest of Noah's sons, was the father of Canaan. Now, this is interesting because Ham was not the only child, right? But why does he point that out? If you keep reading, we'll see. Verse 20 says, Noah began to be a man of the soil. He planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. So it takes a long time to plant a vineyard, not only to plant it, but then for it to actually produce. So it wasn't like that this happened pretty quickly after they got off the ark. All right, I'm no vine dresser, and I by no means make my own wine, but I know that it's not a short process, making wine. Drinking wine isn't a sin. The Bible makes that very clear. But getting drunk is. Why? Well, because you come under the influence of a substance that's not the Holy Spirit. Also, fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So Noah, the spiritual father, the one whose name means comfort or arrest, doesn't bring comfort or rest to humanity. Instead, he chooses to indulge in the fruit of the vine in excess. And as we all know, usually one sin leads to another. He gets so drunk that he undresses himself and is now exposed. Now, I know it might be tempting right now to judge Noah and to think, how in the world could you do this? right? And maybe, maybe you've never gotten drunk, period. Maybe you've me- never gotten drunk enough to just end up naked, and you don't know how you got naked. But how many times have you been drunk on lust? Or how many times have you been drunk on pride? Or how many times have you been drunk with envy? Let's not be quick to judge Noah. But here Noah lies, in his own sin, indecent, uncovered, ashamed. He was unknowingly putting himself in the same situation as Adam and Eve in the garden, naked and ashamed. In his article, Matthew Westmoreland said this, Noah was not the final answer to the problem of sin. In fact, Noah's story unravels in much the same way that Adam's story unraveled. What begins with divine blessing and animals deteriorates with misused fruit, nakedness, and sibling rivalry. But just as the story of the Bible does not end with Noah, the story of redemption does not end with the rainbow. Amen? That's good news. God knew the flood wouldn't wash the sin out of Noah's heart. Just like Adam, Noah leads us into sin. 
Before and after the flood, the human heart is corrupt. Look with me at verse 22 as we learn that the sins of the father led to the sins of the son. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. This is such a disgraceful and dishonorable act. It's important to remember that these are not little boys. These are grown men. Now, there's a lot of speculation about what Ham actually did to Noah, if anything, besides finding him passed out naked. We simply don't know, right? There is no evidence from the text that he actually did anything other than seeing his father naked. Ross says this, It is difficult for people living in the modern world to understand and appreciate the modesty and discretion of privacy called for in ancient morality. Nakedness in the Old Testament was from the beginning a thing of shame for fallen humankind. Now, while we don't know the specific details, we do know this. Ham saw the sin of his father, and he went out and blabbed his mouth. That's what we know. He was unwise. He chose to sin by dishonoring his father and spreading his father's sin for others to know and see. Kent Hughes said, Ham took perverse pleasure in exposing his father's folly to his brothers. Now, before we judge Ham, let's be honest with ourselves. Have you ever taken pleasure in other people's sin? What about gossiping? Can you believe they did that? Dude, guess what I saw so-and-so do? Did you hear about that? Hey, man, check out this picture. Isn't that awesome? What about this video that you know is not honoring to the Lord? Ham didn't try to help. He tried to harm. Because sometimes we like to step on top of other people and point other people's sin out because it directs attention away from us. And we get overlooked. And we might look better or make ourselves feel better. Yes, Noah failed in his role as a disciple maker. Noah failed in his role as a husband, as a father, but that doesn't give Ham the license to flaunt it. What would his brothers do with this information? Look with me at verse 23. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Man, this is a beautiful act of grace. Shem and Japheth's actions stand in stark contrast to Ham. Noah's son's actions have massive spiritual implications. Their action imitates God when Adam and Eve sinned. God covered their nakedness. Noah's sons likewise cover their father's sin and nakedness. Ham uncovers the sin more where Shem and Japheth cover their father, fulfilling the line, love covers a multitude of sins. I couldn't help but, but think while reading this that, man, I, I, I have been like Noah. I have failed as a father. I've failed as a husband. And, man, I hope that I'm raising boys that one day would, would help to, to cover my sin but all because of God's grace. And this is such a beautiful picture. We'll pick up in verse 24. When Noah woke up from his hangover and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, 
Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be, he be to his brothers. So these are, this is astonishing. These are Noah's only recorded words in scripture. It's the only time that we, we see him speak. Canaan is the fourth son of Ham. So Noah cursed his grandson for Ham's sin. What we learn is that the Canaanites are cursed. We know later that the Canaanites are the depraved nemesis of Israel. They were centrally unrestrained and they spread corruption everywhere. Kent Hughes shines light on how relevant this passage was for its first audience. The curse upon Canaan had immense contemporary relevance for the original readers of the Torah as they sojourned for 40 years in the desert. Their orders were to drive out the Canaanites. Noah's oracle had prophesied the bitter fruit that all now could see. The Canaanites were naked, shameless, and uncovered. There's only two types of people in the world. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. You have the spiritually dead and the spiritually alive. And for the context of our passage, you have the uncovered and the covered. Noah didn't only give out a curse, he also gave out blessings. Look at verses 26 and 27. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. The God of Shem is Yahweh. The original readers would have picked up on this wordplay because Shem means the name. So Noah is blessing the Lord God of Shem. By blessing the God of the man, the man himself is blessed. Therefore, Shem's greatest blessing is his relationship with the Lord. Shem is the father of the Israelites because Abraham was descended from Shem. So from the line of Abraham would come King David. And from David's line would come Jesus, the blessed son of David, the only son of God. Noah's curse would come to pass, and Noah's blessing would come to fruition. The context and the placement of this passage before the genealogies in Genesis 10 and 11 is clear. The narrator wants us to know who these men are and where they came from. So when we get to Genesis 12 and read that Abram came to the land of Canaan and the Lord appeared to him and said, to your offspring I will give this land, we understand Genesis 9 better because God was preparing a way for his people. The inheritance of Shem would be Abraham's. For the Israelites to receive the blessing, the curse on the Canaanites had come, it had to come to pass. God's word would come true. It come true. It would be fulfilled. Ross points out that the wickedness of the Canaanites explains that they were cursed. As a part of the theological justification for Israel's subjugation of the Canaanites, this passage had great significance. The point could be worded to reflect this. God will bless the righteous but curse those who live in moral abandonment. And to wrap up our chapter tonight with verses 28 and 29, it says, After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. The end of Noah's story. While Noah was the third oldest person, recorded to live in the Bible. He was not the one who would bring rest to his people. Noah wasn't the comforter from the curse. Genesis chapter 9 ends with a reminder of God's wrath. He talks about the flood again, 
and a continuation of the pattern that we discovered in Genesis 5. And he died. A sober reminder for the Israelites hearing these words for the very first time about their ancestors who lived and who died. Still, a sober reminder for us today as one day every single one of us will die. That will be our end unless Jesus comes back first. Our days are numbered. We aren't promised tomorrow, much less to see the end of tonight. Our God says it's appointed for man to die once and after that to face judgment. And the only way to not fear the judgment is to find rest and comfort in Jesus. As I put my boys to sleep each night, I pray them, I read them and pray through a passage of scripture. Recently, we've been going through the Jesus's I am statements. And last night was John 14, 6. A lot of you probably know that verse. It says, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So while marriage is a blessing and having kids is a blessing and being a part of God's family is a blessing, the greatest blessing in life is Jesus himself. The gospel, the ultimate blessing, comes from the tents of Shem to us through Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.29 says, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise that's fulfilled through Jesus. Today, the gospel has no boundaries, right? As we just prayed, it has no boundaries. It saves the children of Ham, Shem, and Japheth because of the one who did the ultimate covering of sin. In Revelation 3, Jesus is speaking, and listen to these words. For I say to you, I am rich. We, we say these things. I am rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And then he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see that those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Those are the words of our King. Jesus purchased our redemption. Jesus covers our nakedness and shame with his righteousness. The message of the flood is God hates sin, and he punishes unrepentant sinners with unspeakable judgment. The message of the cross is God hates sin and punished, unblemished Jesus with unbearable wrath so that we could receive amazing grace and find everlasting life. Have you repented of your sin and put your trust in this one and only Savior, Jesus Christ? Because Noah sinned, and after God established his covenant, Noah sinned. Kent Hughes said, Noah let sin conquer him. Noah could not make it on his own. He was terribly flawed. He needed help from beyond himself. He needed God's grace. Noah failed. We can't blame Noah any more than we blame Adam and Eve. We're all sinners. We all fell. No one is righteous. No one keeps covenant with God, but God himself. Jesus never fails. Jesus fills all the covenants found in the Bible. Jesus establishes a new covenant in Hebrews 10. This is the covenant that I will make with them 
after these days, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts and write them on their minds. And in Hebrews 12, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Jesus is the only one who is faithful and true. He's the only one who keeps his promises. He's the only one who's opened a way for us to have a relationship with God the Father. God blessed Noah and offered him a new beginning. Jesus is offering you a new beginning. Will you trust him? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you are trustworthy and true. I thank you that you are faithful because we, as your word says, we are all faithless. We all fall. We all fail. We all sin. There is not one person who has ever walked on this face of this earth who has not failed in every regard but you, Jesus, our great king, our great prophet, our great priest. You are the one and only mediator. You are the one and only way. You are the truth. You are the life. You are the one who is faithful and true. And we praise you for your word. We praise you for doing what we could not do. We praise you for covering our sin. We praise you for your grace and your mercy. We praise you for this glorious gospel. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.